recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Chris Degani on Talk Show. Tonight is um, Friday, June 29th, 2012. I've had some nagging technical problems since I've made this road trip. I, um, I still can't have a guest on a program and, and have that guest, um, that, that stream be transmitted to my streaming radio server. So tomorrow, since I have a guest, I will not be broadcasting the program to the stream. It's going to have to be, the audio is going to have to be limited to talk shoe. It, it's um, a technical problem that I cannot overcome with the hardware that I have for this road trip. And it's um, not going to be overcome until I get home, obviously. When I'm home, I have um, much better computer equipment. It's just not very portable computer equipment. And I can put guests through the talk shoe and through the stream at the same time. And and um, that's that's pretty easy to do when I'm home. I've tried to do it for two weeks now on the road. And this computer just doesn't have the, the appropriate sound card. Since it's a laptop, I can't readily change the sound card, right? It just can't be done. That's the way it is. So tomorrow night, I'm going to have Mike Stathis of AVA um, Analytics here. And we're going to be talking about the situation in Europe. And the audio will be limited to talk to you because of my limitations, technically. I'm still in um, Panama City Beach with Lisa and John Wademore, and um, I will be here until Tuesday when I move on to Clio, Alabama to visit the home of Don Spears, which is um, should be edifying. I will be doing a program with him next Saturday here on TalkShoe. I'm not positive what the subject's going to be yet. I guess we'll discuss it when we get there. Tonight, it's the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 6. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Last week, discussing Luke, Chapter 5, we saw at the end of that chapter that Christ pointed out the resistance of people to change from their tired, old, worn-out doctrines. He did so by illustrating the love of people for their old wine, representing the doctrines which they are accustomed to, over an acceptance of the new wine, which is the revelation of truth in him, the exchange of the old covenant for the new covenant. He said in Luke 5.39, and no one drinking the old desires the new, for the old one says, it's good, is good. We have seen For 2,000 years now, the willingness of people to cling to the same old pharisaical ideas found also in the Roman Catholic Church and wherever there is a professional priesthood rather than read their Bibles and see the clear message of the gospel. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He vociferated those commandments. We must love God. We must love our parents and our brethren our racial kindred. That is all that we must do. The other commandments repeated in the New Testament mostly tell us what we must not do, things such as steal, murder, and commit adultery. Everything else that the professional priesthood claims 
that we must do is a doctrine of man and not a new covenant commandment of our God. That is especially true of the sacramental rituals. Yet the New Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures also tell us that we do not need priesthood itself, for we are all priests unto Yahweh our God. When we serve our brethren, and when we serve our white Adamic nations, that makes us priests unto God, performing the service which he actually requires of us. When we submit ourselves to professional priests to do their desires, they become our masters and we are disconnected from our God because no man can serve two masters. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass on the Sabbath that he was passing through a planted field and his students had been plucking and eating the grain rubbing off the husks with their hand. There are some um, translation notes here. The King James, instead of the word for Sabbath, it has a word, and, and it follows a couple of the ancient codices, mostly of the Alexandrian tradition, right? The Codex Alexandrinus, the Ephraim Siri, and also the Codex Bazai, that there's a word, word called deuteroprotos here, rather than the word for Sabbath. And that explains why the King James has the, um, the phrase, the second Sabbath after the first, which is kind of a strange phrase. I, I guess they try to make sense of this odd word. The, um, the better manuscripts simply just say that it came to pass on a Sabbath here, right? The word sporimus actually means sown or fit to be sowing, and, and here it's a planted field. That's not really an embellishment. It's just the use of, 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 a, um, of an adjective that's being used as a noun. It's a substantive. The word stockus. The word stockus is a very misunderstood word, and it's misunderstood not because it's mistranslated. It's corn in the King James almost everywhere it appears. And that has led people into the, um, the, the error feeding certain conspiracy theories that the people of the New Testament were familiar with what we know as corn, and, and that's maize, right? M-A-I-Z-E. And, and that grain is native to North America, but not to anywhere in Europe or in the Middle or Near East? Well, well, maize was not known to the people of the New Testament, to the apostles and to Christ. Rather, the word corn, as, it was, as it's used in England even to this day, corn simply means grain. It means any kind of cereal grain. And in the United States alone, it has come to describe what we also know as maize or, or the yellow, um, famous yellow corn grain that Monsanto is destroying right now, right? Well, well that, that, that's corn to us, but everywhere else in the, word, in, in the English-speaking world, the, mean, the word corn simply means any type of cereal grain. And, and that's why stockus is always grain in the New Testament. 
and that's its basic meaning is grain. It doesn't mean maize or, or corn as we call it here in America. So that's the source of a lot of confusion. The word soko means to rub out, and here I have inferred and added the words to rub, and, and I've added the phrase off the husks in the Christogenian New Testament simply because that's exactly what is meant. It's just not expressed. It's, it's implied. We see the law which allows this taking of grain from another field in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, and I'm going to quote it. When thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, then thou mayest eat the grapes. Eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel. In other words, you could eat your neighbor's grain when you pass through his field or through his vineyard. And, and that infers something else also, right? That infers that your neighbor doesn't have no trespassing signs up because that's not really right either. And we don't see that in the law. We don't transgress our neighbor's boundaries, meaning that we don't take of his land for our gain. But there are no no trespassing signs in the Hebrew Bible, right? I, except that, that the nation itself isn't to be violated by aliens. When thou comest into the standing corn, or the standing grain, of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle into thy neighbor's standing corn. In other words, you can pass through your neighbor's field when you need to. You can eat of the fruit of his plants and, and his trees as you, and his vines as you pass through. Just don't take any with you. That's stealing. That's the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Then some of the Pharisees said, why do you do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? And we're going to get into something a little controversial here because the idea of the Sabbath evokes many emotions, even in, especially in Christian identity. The Codex Bazaar here has, look, why do your students do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? And the Codex Design has many other interpolations in this chapter, and I'm going to ignore most of them for the balance of the chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15 say, Keep the Sabbath day so to sanctify it, as Yahweh thy God has commanded thee. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, so much for the Jewish Shabbos goy, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, that Yahweh thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, therefore Yahweh thy God has commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. And all that's well and good. But should people be expected to starve for the sake of the Sabbath? And if one passes a field and plucks some berries or some grain to eat it because one hungers, is that actually to be considered work and a violation of the Sabbath? Is the spirit of the law of the Sabbath to prohibit 
that smallest enjoyment when one hungers, that need to fulfill one's hunger? Or does the law force one to hunger in the circumstances in which he is found? And that's where the Pharisees differ with Christ in a major way in their interpretations of the law. However, there's more to this story than simply interpretations of the law. Hosea chapter 2 tells us that Yahweh God would take away the Sabbaths, among other things, even though the people of the 70 weeks remnant kingdom continued to keep them, which included Christ himself and the apostles. And I'm going to quote Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to quote it from verse 1 so that we see the entire context and read it through verse 11. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. This is talking allegorically to the nation of the children of Israel. Neither am I her husband. Let her put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother played the harlot. She has conceived them that have done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, that give me my bread and my water, and make a wall, that she shall not find her. I'm sorry. I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall, shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say... I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. The children of Israel would return to their God. For she did not know that I gave her the corn and the wine and the oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. The gifts that Yahweh our God grants us, we give away to his enemies. We still do that to this day. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. This is talking about the punishment of the children of Israel in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Verse 11, I will also cause all her mirth to cease her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. I did not treat this at length in my presentation of the prophecy of Hosea several months ago, where I concentrated on the historical fulfillment of the words of the prophet concerning the children of Israel, for the most part. The Septuagint in Hosea 2.11 says, And I will take away all her gladness, her feasts, and her festivals at the new moon, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn assemblies. Now it should be clear as to why Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 16 and 17, 
Therefore, no one must judge you in food and in drink or in respect of feasts or new moons or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the future things. Whereas the body, Paul is talking about the children of Israel, is of the anointed. Hosea 2.11 clearly states that the Sabbaths and feast days would be taken away by Yahweh our God. The actions of Christ were a sign of the fulfillment of Hosea 2.11. And although we have no record of Christ explicitly stating as much, Paul, as he, as he expressed in Colossians chapter 2, Paul apparently understood it. We as Christians should seek to follow the laws of our God, and we should do so voluntarily. And while that includes the law of the Sabbath, when we do follow those laws, it is certainly to our benefit and to our credit. But we are not going to be saved by keeping the law. Rather, we are only saved by the mercy of God. We are, require God's mercy because we or our fathers couldn't keep the law. Luke 6, verse, verse 3. And replying, Yahshua said to them, Neither have you read that which David did when he and those who were with him had hungered. As he entered into the house of Yahweh and taking the bread of the presentation, he had eaten and had given to those with him, which is not lawful to eat except only the priests. The King James reads, verses 3 and 4 is a question, which is a valid alternative reading. The law concerning the bread which Christ refers to is found in Leviticus chapter 24. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenths deal shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before Yahweh. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of Yahweh made by fire by a perpetual statue. So we see that Others, except Aaron and his sons, others except the priests, were forbidden from eating the bread of the presentation, or the showbread, as it's called in the King James. The account where David and those with him ate the presentation bread of the tabernacle is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob to Abimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king has commanded me a business, and has said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread. It was the showbread of the presentation. If the young man, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women, 
And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in a manner common. Yeah, though it were sacrificed this day in the vessel, David and the priest are basically negotiating so that the priest could give him this bread, right? So the priest gave him hollow bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before Yahweh to put hot bread in the day when it was taken. Luke 6, verse 5. Then he, Christ, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then thou shalt delight thyself in Yahweh, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. So we see in Isaiah 58 an admonition to the children of Israel who were deported, the same children of Israel who were told by Hosea that the Sabbaths would be taken away, they would end. Isaiah tells the children of Israel in chapter 58, Yahweh through Isaiah tells these same children of Israel that if they did not follow after their own pleasures on the Sabbath day, that they would find his pleasure, that he would find delight in them. If the Sabbath day belongs to Yahweh, and if Christ calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, then Christ must be indirectly asserting that he is Yahweh God incarnate. He must also be indirectly asserting that he has the authority and is indeed showing the fulfillment of Hosea 2.11 and the prophecy which says that the Sabbath requirement is taken away. That's what Hosea 2.11 says. It was part of our punishment that it was taken away. But Hosea 2.11 clearly says the Sabbath would be taken away. In its place, and we see this in Isaiah chapter 58, in its place, Christ is urging us to do well on the Sabbath, to follow his example. As Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 58 tells us not to seek our own pleasure on the Sabbath. Well, today most um, Judeo-Christians, they, they go to church on, a, on what they consider to be a Sabbath day, and then they sit in front of their televisions and worship niggers for the rest of the day with a football in their hands or a basketball in their hands seeking their own pleasure. We're to serve our brethren on the Sabbath day, the body of Christ, which is the true tabernacle of our God. We're to do well for our brethren on the Sabbath day and not 
seek our own pleasure. Of course, we should do that every day. Luke 6, verse 6. Then it happened on another Sabbath that he entered into the assembly hall to teach. And there was a man there, and his right hand was withered. But the scribes and the Pharisees were closely observing him. If he would heal on the Sabbath, they were want that they didn't understand Hosea 2.11. They didn't understand Isaiah 58. And they were keeping the letter of the law as found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the scribes and the Pharisees were closely observing him if he would heal on the Sabbath in order that they would find to bring an accusation against him. But he knew their reasonings and said to the man having the withered hand, Arise and stand him in the middle, in the middle of the assembly. And arising, he stood up. Then Yahshua said to him, I inquire of you, said to them, I'm sorry, I inquire of you whether it is lawful on a Sabbath to do good or to do bad, to save or to lose a life. Then looking around at them all, he said to him, to the man he had stand in the middle, extend your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Some of the manuscripts have embellished on that. The Alexandrinus and the Bazai have. His hand was restored as the other, and the Codex Washingtonensis has. His hand was restored to health. The majority text, which the King James is based upon, has even further, his hand was restored to health as the other. Verse 11, And they were filled with the want of understanding and discussed with one another what they could do to Yahshua. The Codex Bazai here has the final clause of this verse, and they debated with one another how they may destroy him. The text of this passage in Luke may have been read, and they discussed with one another what they could do with Yahshua. Luke does not necessarily indicate that they were already plotting to kill him, although the reading, which I've just supplied in the Codex Bazai, interpolates as much. However, in Mark's record of this event, such a sentiment certainly is expressed. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, record record this event, and upon the healing of the man with the withered hand, Mark relates at verse 6, and I quote, And the Pharisees, departing immediately with the Herodians, the Herodians being the people of the court and probably the council of Herod, gave counsel against him how they may destroy him. That's in the parallel account in Mark 3.6. In all of the Gospels, there are many later mentions of a plot to kill Christ. Christ revealed to his apostles, as recorded in Matthew chapter 17 and in Mark chapter 9, that men would indeed kill him. Around the same time, we see in Luke 13, 31, the statement that the same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. So we see that the problem wasn't only with the priests, it was also a political problem with Herod himself. 
at that time. Even though Herod, later on during the crucifixion, would have nothing to do with him and sent him back to Pilate. In Mark 3, verse 6, we see that the Herodians gave counsel against him how they may destroy him, as well as the Pharisees. Later in his ministry, in the Gospel of John, we read of the plot of the leaders of Judea to kill him for the time that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, which happened in the closing, closing months of his ministry, just before that final fateful Passover. John 11.53 finishes his account of that event with a statement that, therefore, from that day, they, meaning the high priests and the Pharisees, determined that they would kill him. We also see in Luke chapter 22, too, where it says that, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. In other words, that was the only thing that prevented him, prevented them from killing him. But here in Luke and in Mark chapter 3, we do see that the Pharisees were plotting to kill Christ at this much earlier time. It's evident that they plotted to kill him all throughout his ministry because he challenged their authority and they had no answers for his challenges. The same way today a Baptist preacher would throw most Christian identities out of the church because they don't like the hard questions. Luke 6.12 And it came to pass in those days that he departed for a mountain to pray and was passing the night in the prayer of Yahweh. And when day came, he called to his students and chose out twelve from among them, whom he then named ambassadors, or apostles. Simon, whom he also named Petrus, and Andreas his brother, and Jacob and Johannes and Philippus, and Bartholomaeus, and Matthias and Thomas, and Jacob the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judah, the brother of Jacob, and Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. This is the first time that the word apostle or apostolus appears in Luke. The word is common in classical Greek, and it basically means a messenger, an ambassador, or an envoy. I've chosen to translate apostolus as ambassador, and not merely to transliterate it, apostle, which is what is usually done with the word. I did not choose to render it as messenger because I thought that would confuse the term with another common Greek word, which means messenger, and that is the word angelus. Angelus is usually transliterated as angel in English Bibles. While Matthew does not describe the apostles and list them until a later time, he does it in the 10th chapter of his gospel, the chronology of this event as it appears in Luke is indeed supported by Mark chapter 3 in relation to the healing of the man with the withered hand and following that, this event being portrayed as we see here in Luke. However, Mark's list of the original 12 apostles differs somewhat. Here is Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. 
and he made these twelve. Simon, whom he also labeled with the name Petros, or Peter, and Jacob the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of Jacob. And he labeled them with the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. That would be sons of thunder in Hebrew and not in Greek. And Andreas, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and Jacob the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, that's one difference, and Simon the Canaanian, that's another difference, and Judas Iscariot, he who also betrayed him. Mark does not record the sermon which Christ gave to his students, the famous Sermon on a Mount, and a multitude of followers, which follows this listing of the twelve apostles. Mark calls the second Simon the Canaanian, which is a man of Cana, while Luke calls him the zealot. A lot of people have made the error because the King James and the manuscripts, the manuscripts which the King James Version and other popular versions are based upon has Simon the Canaanite. A lot of people had made the mistake that Canaanite is a word which means zealot in Hebrew, and therefore they account for the difference in Luke. And none of that's true, and none of that's necessary. It's not, in the better manuscripts, it does not say Simon the Canaanite. It says Simon the, Cana- the, the Canaanian, which is a man of Cana. Cana is the city in Galilee where several of the apostles had come from and where Christ attended a certain wedding, which we see in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John. Simon was a man of Cana. He was never a Canaanite. Luke calls him the zealot. That's not a translation of Cana or Canaanite. It's obvious that Simon had a nickname. He was also called Simon the zealot. Mark wants Jude. Mark makes no mention of Jude, whom Luke mentions here as Jude, the brother of Jacob, or Jude, the brother of James, meaning James, the son of Alphaeus. Mark then lists Thaddeus immediately after James, the son of Alphaeus. So we see Luke rounds out the 12 apostles by mentioning Jude, and Mark rounds out the 12 apostles by mentioning Thaddeus. Now, it is possible that Thaddeus is another name for Jude, and some people conjecture that. Seeing where he is listed, he's roughly listed in the same place, just as a different name. However, it's also possible that Luke, who did not record this event except through various witnesses years later, whereas Mark's testimony comes directly from Peter, who was an eyewitness. It's possible that Luke did not know of a Thaddeus and that Jude had later replaced Thaddeus in the Twelve. Now, that's also conjecture, but it's a lot more plausible since it is unlikely that Thaddeus had three names. Thaddeus is called Libahius in Matthew chapter 10, verse 3. And Matthew in his gospel calls him, in his list of the apostles, Labahius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Thaddeus is Labahius, as we see in Matthew, but Thaddeus is not Jude. It is also more plausible, since Thaddeus was not considered 
the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, by either Mark or Matthew. However, Jude is listed as the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, and he calls himself the brother of James in his epistle. John, in John 14.22, lists Jude among the disciples of Christ, talking about this same Jude. And for all of these reasons, I believe that Thaddeus or Thaddeus Lobahius must have at one point dropped out or been omitted from the list of 12, and that Luke added Jude to round out the list. Christ had many more disciples and many more students. We see at one point in the scripture that he had 72 and not merely 12. Where Luke says in this list of the apostles, Jacob the son of Alphaeus, or James the son of Alphaeus in the New in, in the King James Version. And then he says, Judah, the brother of Jacob. The relationships are only implied. The relationships are not at all explicit in the Greek. There is no place where Alphaeus is mentioned in connection with Jacob where the relationship is explicitly stated, either here or in Matthew chapter 10, or in Mark chapter 3, or in Acts chapter 1. However, since the brothers of Christ are explicitly mentioned in several places, James must be the son of Alphaeus, which is the primary use of the Greek construction in the first place. The relationship of Jude to James is certain, since this is surely the Jude of Matthew 13.55 and Mark 6.3. And in those places, the relationship of both Jude and James to Christ is explicitly stated, and he is also the Jude of the epistle, where the author explicitly calls himself the brother of James. Jude and Jacob, or Jude and James, are the brethren of Christ and are his half-brothers through his mother Mary. It is evident, as we have illustrated many times here, that Mary had several children later in life. She had at least three sons, and she had at least three daughters after she gave birth to Christ, whom both Luke, in Luke 2.7, and Matthew, in Matthew 1.25, call her firstborn son. Christ is specifically called Mary's firstborn son in those Gospels. After Christ, whom Luke says was supposed to be the son of Joseph, James and his other brothers must be the sons of Mary by Alphaeus. And there's a good biblical reason for that, which goes far beyond this identification here, where James is called James of Alphaeus, and the normal Greek construction infers that he is the son of Alphaeus. If Joseph was a legitimate heir to the throne of David, and if Joseph himself later had other sons, those other sons would have a claim to that throne, since Christ was not Joseph's genetic son. For the same reason, both Cain and Abel were trying to fill the office of priest 
in Genesis chapter 4. Abel being the true genetic son. Regardless of Cain's legal position because Adam had accepted Eve in her sin. Yet if Joseph had no other sons, and if Mary's later children are sired by another husband, then Christ is indeed Joseph's only legitimate heir. Although he was actually raised up by Yahweh, his true father, for Joseph. Therefore, if Joseph died before he had other sons, Christ can be considered a son raised up as an heir to Joseph by Yahweh himself. Even though the conception happened before Joseph actually died. So while Mary indeed had other children later in her life, she must have had them by another man, so that it would be no rival claimant to the throne of David. And here we see that James is mentioned as the son of Alphaeus. About Judas Iscariot, who had become a traitor, There's a lot of differences in the spelling of this word Iscariot in the ancient manuscripts. In some manuscripts, it's Iscariotes. In the Codex Bazai, it's simply Scarioth without the I. The word is certainly a transliteration in the Greek of the Hebrew words Ish. Strong's Hebrew number 377, Ish is a man and Kerioth, the name of a city, Strong's Hebrew number 7152. And Strong notes that himself in his concordance, albeit with less certainty, and he cites 7149 instead of 7152 at his definition of the word Iscariotes in the Greek dictionary number 2469. The city Kerioth is mentioned in the Old Testament in Joshua 15.25, in Jeremiah 48, and in Amos 2.2. Iscarioth surely means a man of Kerioth. The town of Kerioth was on the original border of Judah and Edomea, the ancient land of Edom, and was one of those towns of Judea that the Edomites had taken over and moved into. The nature of Judas is revealed when Christ, states the, when, when Christ states rhetorically, have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a devil. This is recorded at John 6.70. John again records of Christ at John 13.10 and 11, where he says, Yahshua says to him, speaking to Peter, he who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, but not all. The word for you there is in the plural. Christ is talking to the group. The group is clean, but not all. For he knew the man betraying him, John says in chapter 13, verse 11. For this reason he said, you are not all clean. If Judas was not clean, he could not have been an Israelite. 
Since Yahweh promised to cleanse all Israel without exception, therefore the scriptural evidence is overwhelming that Judas Iscariot was an Edomite. He was not an Israelite. The historical evidence and the linguistic evidence that he was a man of Kerioth assures that the interpretation is a solid one. Luke 6.17 And descending with them, he stood upon a level place. He was finished with his prayers. He had gone up into the mountain to pray, ostensibly to pray alone, although he was followed by some of his disciples. And the great crowd of his students and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre, or Taurus, and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed from their diseases, and those being disturbed by unclean spirits had been cured. The codices Sinaiticus and Washingtonensis have in part Jerusalem and the regions beyond and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. The Codex Bazai appends to verse 17 the following words. And a great multitude of people from all of Judea and other cities coming. I only cite those examples to show some of the variations in the various ancient manuscripts. And reading them, we find that most of them are insignificant or, or really don't matter very much to how we perceive our faith or the historical events in Scripture. Here we find the circumstances described are the same as those which are found in Matthew at the end of chapter 4 and starting from chapter 5. And therefore, this must be the same Sermon on the Mount which Matthew had recorded. While there are differences in what is said, they are easily accounted for when it is realized that Luke must have had a different witness to the words than Matthew did. It cannot be assumed that either Luke or Matthew were there to hear the Sermon on the Mount for themselves. Luke appears in the historical narrative of the New Testament in Acts chapter 16. Matthew describes his own selection as an apostle in chapter 9 of his Gospel, much later than his record of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke admits getting his gospel from eyewitnesses, and Matthew must have gotten the material for the early chapters of his gospel from other witnesses as well, even though he doesn't tell us that explicitly. Once it is realized that different witnesses may well have supplied the account of the Sermon on the Mount for the two gospel writers who recorded it, it is easy to imagine why the words of Christ are presented differently in each record. While Christ surely said all that was recorded, different witnesses would remember different parts of his discourse and have different perspectives concerning what they should record, since evidently neither record is fully complete. While we cannot assume that all of these people were gathered, who were gathered here were Israelites, 
it can be assumed that at least most of them were. The 42,000 plus people who returned from Babylon had indeed grown into a people which was strong enough to break the yoke of the Greek Seleucid kings of Syria. That was no mean feat. That was no minor battle by the time of the Maccabees, circa 155 BC, which was over 350 years from the building of the Second Temple, which occurred in 516 BC, which was completed circa 516 BC. Thereafter, from 155 BC, the people of Judea remained free until Roman times, approximately 90 years later. They were no longer threatened by the Seleucids, even though the Seleucids were seen as a fairly powerful kingdom. They remained free approximately until approximately 90 years later when they also put up a considerable resistance to Rome, but they did not prevail. And even when Rome took Jerusalem, which was achieved by Pompey in 63 BC, it was with a very large faction of Judeans on the side of the Romans. Romans, the, Rome had, the Romans had taken Jerusalem in 63 BC during a civil war between those Judeans who supported the Pharisees and those Judeans who supported the Sadducees. There was a civil war in Judea going on at the time. So aside from the absorption of the Edomites and the Canaanites and the other diverse peoples in Judea by this time, some of whom must have even been remnants of old Israel who escaped captivity, the Judeans as a people must have spread back throughout all of these places before the time of Christ and the pages of the histories of Josephus also helped to establish that. So it's very likely that all these people that were coming from all these different places to hear Christ, that at least most of them were indeed Israelites. Luke 6.19 And all the crowd sought to touch him, because power comes out from him and heals all. This statement is substantiated later on in Matthew chapter 9, in Mark chapter 5, and in Luke chapter 8 where in all three Gospels we see described the woman with the issue of blood, who merely sought to touch the hem of his garment, and when she did, she was healed. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities, who heals all thy diseases, who redeems thy life from destruction, who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Yahweh executes righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy and none of the children of Israel are without that mercy. And none of this has ever changed with the new covenant, which is made for those same people 
we must bear that in mind whenever reading its promises. Verse 20. Then he, raising his eyes to his students, said, Blessed are the poor, because yours is the kingdom of Yahweh. Blessed are those hungering now, because you shall be filled. Blessed are those weeping now, because you shall laugh. Proverbs 28:26. He that gives to the poor shall not be in want, but he that turns away his eye from him shall be in great distress. Keep that in mind when we talk about the wealthy or when Christ talks about the wealthy in the verses to come. From Zechariah chapter 11, which has everything to do with the establishment of the new covenant, from verse 7, a short quote, And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock, the flock of slaughter, being the children of Israel, being cast away by Yahweh their God. From Ezekiel chapter 34, from verse 16, I will seek that which was lost, the words of God himself, speaking of himself, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. So we see the conditions of the world at the time when Yahweh's judgment comes to the world. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Matthew chapter 25 tells us the rams are all saved, the goats all go into the lake of fire. It seems, seems it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle, because you have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the disease with your horns till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even David, my servant. And he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. David was a type for Christ. And here in Ezekiel, the reference is to Christ himself. Note that David, before he was made a king, was a shepherd of his father's flocks. And so it is with Christ. From 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 19, Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, who is with the sheep.
Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they separate from you, and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in accordance with these same things did their fathers do to the prophets. Luke twenty one sixteen and 17. But you shall be handed over by, even by parents and brethren and kinsmen and friends, and they shall kill some of you, and you shall be hated by all on account of my name. Two Chronicles, chapter 36. Verse 15. And Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Yet the mystery of this iniquity is explained in Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, and in a lesson of the good and the bad figs in Jeremiah chapter 24. There was a reason why the people of Jerusalem killed the prophets and despised his words and misused his prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2, Yahweh says, I have planted thee a pleasant plant. How hast thou become a strange vine unto me? Jeremiah chapter 2, Yahweh says, Though thou wash thee with nitre and use thee much soap, Thine iniquity is marked before me. The children of Jerusalem had gotten dirty and they couldn't wash off the sin. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1, And again the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Though I have planted me a pleasant plant, how hast thou become a strange vine unto me? The children of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, had race mixed with the Canaanites. That's how they became a strange vine. That's how they rejected the words of the prophets the people of Judah had race mixed with all of those who were accursed by God. So it was in ancient Palestine, and the Jews of today are the descendants of these very same bad figs. The enemies of Yahweh our God have always accounted those who, hold, who told the truth as criminals. So it was in the days of the prophets of ancient Israel, and so it is with those who tell the truth today. 
the apostles and the martyrs were not slain by the Romans because they were preaching peace, love, and joy. The reformers were not persecuted by the popes because the reformers were sinful in the eyes of God. It is the Kenite, Canaanite, Edomite, Jewish dragon, which always gives its power to the beast. So it was with Rome, and as Tertullian and Minucius Felix and other early Christian apologists have asserted, it was the Jews who put the Romans up to the persecution of Christians. And as a study of medieval history can prove, it was the Jewish popes, the Borgias and the De Medicis, who were responsible for the persecution of Christians again during the Reformation. Wherever the beast rules, evil is given legitimacy for the sake of empire, and freedom becomes an imposed tyranny. The famous question, why can't we all just get along, is a product of Jewish and anti-Christian propaganda. The idea of libertarianism is also an anti-Christian concept. The true Christian resists evil, rejects it from his community, and therefore naturally becomes an enemy of a wicked state. Some real Christians can even be denigrated and branded as exterminationists by certain Jewish pretenders. Luke 6.24, But woe to you who are wealthy, because you hold your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, because you shall hunger. Woe to those laughing now, because you shall mourn and you shall weep. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 31, verse 4. The poor labors in his poor estate, and when he leaves off, when he stops working, he is still needy. He that loves gold shall not be justified, and he that follows corruption shall have enough thereof. Gold has been the ruin of many, and their destruction was present. If you are wealthy, you will more than likely use the gifts which God has blessed you with to your own advantage. From James chapter 5, Come on now, those who are wealthy, weep, crying out upon your coming hardships. Your wealth is putrefied, and your garments have become moth-eaten. James isn't writing this to the Jews. James is writing this to Christians. James is writing this to our own people who act like Jews. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion shall be for a testimony to you, and it shall eat your flesh as fire. You have saved up for the last days. Many of the first shall be last, and many of the last first. Behold, the wages of the laborers reaping your fields, which have been withheld by you, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have entered into the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously and lewdly upon the earth. You have nourished your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who did not oppose you. According to James, if one is rich, one has evidently shortchanged those in his employ so that he himself can live luxuriously. 
and the day is coming that the wealthy shall be judged in that manner. The most basic difference between a well-off Christian and a rich Jew or a rich Antichrist is, in my opinion, that the well-off Christian, if he is indeed a Christian, seeks to be a good steward and to use his wealth in order to help his kindred and to help his community in meaningful ways. On the other hand, the wealthy Jew uses his wealth in order to gain still more power and to control the people and the community around him, which aren't necessarily his community, of course. I'm getting some strange feedback on the line, and it has to be coming from TalkShoe. I can't under I don't understand where it's coming from, and it's to me it's obviously coming from TalkShoe. It's it's um annoying to say the least. Revelation chapter seven, verse sixteen. They shall hunger no longer, nor shall they thirst any longer, nor shall the sun fall upon them, nor any burning heat. Because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall shepherd them, and shall guide them to fountains of living waters, and Yahweh shall wipe every tear from their eyes. So that promise to the poor, the promises Christ has made to the poor and to those who hunger now, and to those who weep and mourn now, the promise of recovery from that, is extant all the way through the New Testament. We see it in Revelation chapter 7. Verse 26. Woe, when all men speak well to you, for in accordance with these same things that their fathers do to the false prophets. When you seek to please men, you become a compromiser. When you seek to please men, you end up negotiating the truth of God. So it was in ancient Israel. And so it is to this day, even in circles within Christian identity. Verse 27, but I say to you, to those listening, that's an important clause here, to those listening or to those hearing, love your enemies, do well to those hating you, speak well to those cursing you, offer prayers for those abusing you. To him striking you upon the cheek, you offer also the other. And from him taking your cloak, do not also forbid your shirt. You must give to each who is asking, and from him taking your belongings, do not demand them back. Christ is speaking to those listening or to those who are hearing. In John chapter 10, he said, I have spoken to you and you do not believe, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and certain to the rulers of the Judeans, the works which I do in the name of my Father. These things testify concerning me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they are not lost forever, and one shall not snatch them from my hand. In Matthew chapter 13, Christ said, Because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, but to those it is not given for he who has, it shall be given to him, and he shall have abundance. But to he who does not have, even that which he has shall be taken from him. 
For this reason, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they shall not see, and hearing they shall not hear, nor shall they understand. Christ himself also said in Matthew chapter 15, that I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. David hated the enemies of God. And yet we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, this quote from the Old Testament where Yahweh God testifies, that I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. From Psalm 139, we see these words of David. From verse 19, Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Pronouncing Jesus does not make one a Christian. David continues, Do not I hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Likewise, the Apostle John tells us in his second epistle that each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not seek to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Therefore, Christians are not to be forced into interpreting these words of Christ as if we should apply them to everyone on the face of the planet. We are not to love or have community with the enemies of Christ our God. We are not to interpret these words in any manner in application to anyone outside of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because if Christ came only for them, then these words apply to them alone. Christians are and then share everything they have. Luke 6.31 And just as you wish that men would do to you, you likewise do to them. And if you should love those loving you, what benefit is it to you? For even the wrongdoers love those loving them. And if indeed you should do good to those doing good to you, what benefit is it to you? Even the wrongdoers do this. And if you should loan to from whom you hope to receive, what benefit is it to you? Even the wrongdoers loan to wrongdoers that they would receive back their belongings. If we treat all those of our race, whether friend or foe, whether near or remote, as we ourselves would want to be treated, then our Father in heaven shall reward us for it. If we accept the loss of our property for the advantage of our racial brethren, 
then our Father in heaven shall reward us for it. Of course, none of this applies to the enemies of our God. As 2 John verses 9 to 11 tell us, we are to have nothing to do with them. Verse 35, but you should love your enemy and do good and loan nothing hoping return and your reward will be great. And you shall be sons of the highest because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Of course, the ungrateful of the children of Israel and the wicked of the children of Israel. Of course, all of the children of Adam are already children of Yahweh our God. That's what the scripture says in Luke 3.38 and in Acts 17.28 and especially of the children of Israel at Deuteronomy 14.1. Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Statements such as this one which says, you shall be sons of the highest, are assurances of the recognition of those of our race as children of God when their, merit, when their behavior merits such recognition. And there are several passages of Scripture which demonstrate that. Romans chapter 8, Romans 9, 4, Galatians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, Recover the position of sons. We recover our position as sons by seeking to do the will of our Father and by accepting the redemption which is in Christ. Luke 6.36 You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate and you must not judge that you would not be judged and you must not condemn that you would not be condemned. Acquit, and you shall be acquitted. The first sentence of verse 37 may better be read, and you shall not bring to trial that you would not be brought to trial. The verb crino is basically to judge, and it means so in the sense of to bring to trial, to accuse, to file a formal accusation against someone to pass sentence upon someone, to, con- to carry out that sentence in condemnation. And here, used with verbs which mean to condemn and to acquit, then it certainly refers to actual criminal judgment in trial. Judgment and condemnation here are used in the legal sense and not in the moral sense. These words are used by modern churches in a manner so as to convince Christians that they shouldn't make moral judgments. Christians certainly should make moral judgments. These words here have to do with the legal sense of the terms. The word rendered to acquit here is the word apoluo, which means to loose from, to set free from, to release. And with the verbs to meaning to judge and to condemn, 
it certainly should be to acquit. Where the King James Version here renders it as forgive, yet it's the word afiemi. It's a totally different verb, not this verb here, apaluo, which is the usual verb to forgive in the Bible. Many would pervert the meaning of the text here, attempting to force one into accepting people of all sorts or with all kinds of wicked and perverted proclivities. These are perverted minds who would twist the word of God in order to legitimize the practice of all unseemliness for themselves. Rather, what this is telling us is that we are not to judge wicked people and punish them physically for violations of the law. That's what this is telling Christians to do. Rather, we are to expel them from our community and separate ourselves from them so that God may judge them. And we see that put into practice in 1 Corinthians 5.19 and also in Revelation 22.15. Christ told us in Matthew chapter 13 to forgive the repentant sinner as often as he may sin against us. Paul told us how to handle unrepentant sinners in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he writes, and I quote from verse 9, I had written to you in a letter not to associate with fornicators, not at all with the fornicators of this world, meaning the Jews, or with the covetous, or rapacious, or idolaters, seeing that you are therefore obliged to come out from the world, but presently I have written to you not to associate with any brother if he is being designated a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or abusive or drunken or rapacious, not even to eat with such a wretch. What is it to me to judge those outside? In other words, Christians shouldn't be concerned with the world. Not at all should you judge those within you or those among you. But those outside, Yahweh judges. We should trust that we expel the wicked people from amongst us and trust that God judges them. Therefore, Paul says, you will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. If we forgive our repentant brethren of their errors, and if we expel those who are unrepentant from our community, we pray that God judges those people who were expelled. These words of Christ mean that we shouldn't condemn our brethren under the penalties which are proscribed in the ancient Mosaic law. That's what Christ is telling us here. Rather, Paul tells us, keeping with these words of Christ, that we expel unrepentant sinners and God will judge them. And we put our trust in God that he will do that. That is Christian judgment. Give, and it shall be given to you. 
A good measure pressed, shaken, overflowing, shall they put into your bosom. For in the measure with which you measure, it shall be measured in return to you. Some of the manuscripts have for that same measure by which you measure, it shall be measured in return to you. The measure by which you judge others is the measure by which you yourself shall be judged. If you are unforgiving towards your people, then Yahweh your God shall be unforgiving with you. Matthew chapter 18 from verse 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and freed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out, and found one of his own fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him, and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servants fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. And he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because you desired it of me. Should thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, to the torturers, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. We forgive our repentant brethren, our unrepentant brethren, being sinners, we must put them outside of our community and pray that God judges them. We are not to fulfill the judgment of the Old Testament law. That is all Christ is saying in these passages here in Luke. Then he spoke to them a parable, Luke 6.39. Is anyone blind able to guide the blind? Would they not both fall into a ditch? There is no student above the teacher, but all having been restored, he shall be as his teacher. Of course, no Christian should seek to exalt himself above Christ, but we should all seek to be like him. The word katartizo in the King James Version here is perfect. The word means to adjust or put in order again or to restore, or, in some cases, to furnish completely, which is why it was translated, to be perfect or perfected. I would assert that each of the children of Israel being restored shall indeed be complete. The word katartizo also appears in 2 Corinthians 13.9, where, Christ, where, where Paul says, and this we also pray for, your restoration. It also appears in Ephesians 4.12, and I will quote that passage from Paul from Ephesians 4.11, 
And he has given the ambassadors and the interpreters of prophecy and those who delivered a good message and the shepherds, teachers, towards the restoration of the saints for the work of the ministering for the building of the body of the anointed. All having been restored, he shall be, each of us shall be as our teacher. Verse 41. Now why do you see the stick in the eye of your brother, but the beam in your own eye you do not perceive? How are you able to say to your brother, Brother, let me extract the stick which is in your eye, yourself not seeing the beam which is in your own eye? Hypocrite, extract the first the beam from your eye, and then you will see clearly to extract the stick which is in the eye of your brother. Those who would seek to judge their brethren must be free of reproach themselves. That's why we are told not to uphold the Mosaic Law and its judgments. Because we all have sinned. For this reason, among other things, in 1 Timothy, which he wrote in reference to ministers and supervisors of the Christian assemblies, Paul wrote of prospective ministers that in like manner, reverent ministers, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not shamefully desirous of gain, holding the mystery of the faith with a clean conscience, but even they must be scrutinized first, then being void of offense, they must minister. In other words, if you want to serve the community of God, you have to be without sin. You have to be without scandal. 1 Timothy 3, 8-10. At the same time, men who are set in positions to judge must recognize that since all men are sinners, they must judge their brethren mercifully if they themselves expect mercy when they are judged. From Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Yahweh will be true and every man a liar, just as it is written that you should be just in your words and you shall prevail when you are judged. Luke 6, 43, For there is not a good tree making rotten fruit. Contrarily, neither is there a rotten tree making good fruit. Even though all men sin, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every child of God has the capacity to do good with the right instruction and guidance. Every child of God shall do good at the restoration. Yet none of the enemies of God can ever do good, regardless of instruction. They can never be pleasing to God. They are all bastards born contrary to his will. The gospel message is the dividing point between the wheat and the tares. As John the Baptist said, recorded in Matthew chapter 3, but the already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Surely any tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water into repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All of the wheat is saved. All of the tares go into the fire. The good tree cannot really make bad fruit, 
but the bad tree certainly will never make good fruit. Verse 44, For each tree is known by its own fruit. Indeed, they do not gather figs from thorns, nor can they harvest grapes from brambles. The good man brings forth good from the good treasure of his heart, and the wicked brings forth evil from the wicked, from the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. There are apparently a lot there there are a lot of apparently white people who do wicked things who are really bastards and not sons. Likewise, there are a lot of good white people who are caught up in a world who have never heard the real gospel message and who have been taught to sin. Here we are told not to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. We must seek out our racial kindred and bring them to the gospel. But we should never try to find good fruit in bad trees. We should never bring the gospel message to those of other races, since those bad trees can never produce good fruit. Yet since there are tares among the wheat, and since until the harvest, it is difficult to tell to tell the tares and the wheat apart. The gospel must be allowed to do that which it is supposed to do. It is the gospel message, which is to divide the wheat and the tares for us. Now, why do you call me Prince Prince or Lord Lord, yet do not the things which I say? The Judeo-Christians all claim Christ as Lord and King, but most of them have no idea what he has actually said. Everyone who coming to me and hearing my words and doing them, I will show to you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who is dug up and deepened and placed a foundation upon the bedrock. And a flood coming, the river bursts forth against that house, yet, he was not, yet it was not able to shake it because it was well built. But he who hears and does not is like a man building a house upon the earth without a foundation, which the river bursts forth against, and immediately it collapses, and great becomes the breaking of that house. From Psalm 18, I will love thee, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. I will call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a buckler to all those who trust in him. For who is God save Yahweh? Or who is a rock save our God? It is God that girds me with strength and makes my ways perfect. From 1 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 11. For another foundation no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. Now if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. Those who have built gold, silver, 
and precious stones upon that foundation will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, this is talking about those who build timber and fodder and straw. They burn completely in the fire. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved. Although consequently through fire, through the trials of this life, So even those of us who, have, who are sinners, those of us who have no good works in this life, being children of the promise, are still to be preserved, although consequently through fire, which as we read in 1 Peter, foundation which he has given us, then our works shall stand in the end. If we do not build good things upon that foundation, we shall face greater trials in this life. However, being children of God, we shall still see the kingdom of heaven. But nobody collects grapes from thorns. We look for the sheep. We don't try to convert the thorns. Nobody collects figs from bramble bushes or from thistles. We look for the sheep, our racial brethren in the world. We don't try to convert the bramble bushes and the thistles. We have no gospel for the beasts of the field. Regardless of our sin, anyone who would seek to throw a child of our God into the lake of fire, anyone who claims that a white man will burn in hell is a real murderer, for he hates his brother, and he who hates his brother has not God. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next week, hopefully from, God willing, from Cleo, Clio, I think they pronounce it, Clio, Alabama, in the home of Don Spears. Good night.